This is Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, featuring Father Joshua Wirth. Today's show is about the killing of innocence. And here's Father Joshua Wirth. This is Father Joshua Wirth, and welcome to Double-Edged Sword. And... Today we're going to be talking about something I've been dreading talking about since I started uh, this radio show, and that is the topic of abortion. Uh, Nobody, no priest looks forward to talking about it. Nobody likes hearing about it, but I think it's important that, um, you know, around this feast day of the massacre of the Holy, Holy Innocents, which we celebrate on Wednesday of 2011, December 28th, that we look again at that topic of abortion and how uh, that was the death of children was even alive in in Jesus' time. So if you look at Matthew 2, two years after he was born, they were still in Bethlehem. They had moved to a house and the Magi had come to visit Jesus and see him. And they had been given a message that they should not go back the way they came. What was the way they came? The way they came was they visited Herod first, and they promised Herod that they would come back and on their way back and tell him about the newborn king. An angel tells them not to do that, so they don't. Now, Herod is frightened, terribly frightened of the idea of the newborn king. This is going to be somebody that replaces him. It's going to take over his power. So... Since he realizes that the Magi have tricked him, he says this in verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been deceived by the Magi, he became furious. He ordered a massacre of all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity, two years old and under, in accordance with the time he he had ascertained from the Magi. Then was fulfilled what had been said through Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah sobbing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she would not be consoled since they were no more. So Herod, in order to stop this newborn king, this king that would one day replace his family, not necessarily him, but his family, he sends out his soldiers to kill everyone there. But Jesus and Mary and Joseph were already gone because in verse 13, When the Magi had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod, that what the Lord had said through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. So, through God's providence, Jesus and Joseph and Mary fled from Bethlehem and went to Egypt, but all the young boys, two and under, were killed there. Now, the number has differed. Uh, Some people used to think that maybe it was in the thousands, but Bethlehem just wasn't that big. So people have been able to ascertain how many people were in Bethlehem, what percentage of people would have a child, you know, how many of those would be boy how many of them would be two or younger? And so they're starting to think it's more like 15 to 20 children were killed at that time. But still, it's a great prefigurement of what's going to happen in the name of Jesus, that people are going to die to protect him, going to die in his place. These are, in effect, the first martyrs 
we call Stephen the first martyr because he died after the death of Jesus and proclaiming Jesus. And we celebrated that the day after Christmas. But these are the first people that died in his place, that Jesus was supposed to be killed with them. And so they took the bullet for him. They took that punishment for him. And of course, Jesus, even though he's a babe, a little baby at that time, he would always, being God, he would always know this. He would always remember this, that these little children had died for him. Now, this brings us to the modern problem of abortion. In many ways, it's the same, that people are becoming pregnant, and because of the situations in their life, they, they are afraid of this child, terrified by this child, terrified about what this life of the child might mean, just like Herod was. And so they don't want anything to change. They don't want what they've been living to change or be hampered in any way, inconvenienced in any way. Uh, they don't want their level of comfort of living to diminish in any way. So these women and men that are terrified at the prospect of this child being born put that child to death before it could even take its first breath uh, in order to put things back the way they were. And, you know, I have a hard time condemning that because I can I can relate to it so much. My own sister, she was... 16, no, seven, 17, and when she got pregnant by a much older man who was nine, eight, nine years older than her, and he had already been divorced, he had already had two children, and, uh, you know, just was not a good, stable partner. And I remember this great dread, this great terror coming over me and my family, and wondering, you know, how do we fix this? How do we set this straight? How do we get this back to zero? How do we even this out? How do we just undo this? There's got to be a way, we thought to ourselves. There's got to be a way to just undo this. Unfortunately, because of the Supreme Court and doctors that don't know their trade very well, there's a certain group of doctors that say, I have the solution. I can get it back to zero. I can, get, I can undo what's been done. And that is through removing that child and letting that child die. I mean, they don't put it in that word. They, they'll say, we're going to end your pregnancy. We're going to terminate your pregnancy. As if they were ordering a car and we're just saying, well, you know what? We're just not going to build it. We'll just terminate your order. And, but I know that feeling. And there was a great almost prayer in me like the prayer that Jesus had when he was in his garden of suffering where he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I think I prayed that prayer for my sister. I'm sure she prayed that prayer. I know my dad prayed that prayer. God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from her. You know, if it's possible, you find a solution that we that takes us back to zero, that, that allows her not to have to suffer by raising a child in high school, having a child in high school and going through, going through college with a child, you know, before that she's ready. If there's any way that this cup could pass by your doing, not by our doing, but by your doing, make this. But in the end, we had to, we, you know, my father really stood up and said, 
if it's God's will, it's his will. Let his will be done, not ours. And, uh, you know, my dad really stood up and said, you know, we're a pro-life family, and this is something that we're going to we're going to handle as, as a pro-life family. And we did. And we, um, my nephew came into the world, and he's been a, a wonderful nephew, and he's, and he's really smart, and he's really bright. And I wonder, you know, and he makes the world a better place, this life. Not that it wasn't a struggle. My sister struggled raising him. You know, she got, she married uh, his father, but they were divorced before their first anniversary. You know, struggle with court and child support and all these things. And then my nephew, you know, has had to struggle with going back and forth between mom and dad's house all the time. So it's not without, it's, it's suffering, but it's through suffering that we redeem our souls. So it's not something we should run away from either. But I can, I can relate. I can understand why women feel that there's no other choice. And oftentimes those other choices are taken away. You know, I listened to Whoopi Goldberg on and it's been said that she's had several abortions and somebody mentioned, you know, what if you had an unplanned pregnancy? And she said, well, sometimes the mother just isn't able to raise a child at that time. So she has no other choice. Well, of course, why? There's still a choice. Why not adoption? Why is adoption off the table? I think it's because... Uh, you know, as I, I met one young girl I went to college with, and she had an abortion, and she explained to me that she just couldn't bear the idea of her child being raised by somebody else. That adoption was actually more painful of an idea than abortion. And that just breaks my heart because so then the other solution is kill that child? Is that the other solution so you don't have to think about the guilt of of um, somebody else raising your child you know if you talk to anybody that's years beyond their abortion they'll tell you no that the guilt of, of abortion is much worse than that of adoption much worse but of course people aren't told that before before they go into the abortion clinic to see the doctor and you know, what is the solution to this? Recently, there's been some things in the, on the ballot in the court. I know there's, I can't remember which state, wanted to make a personhood amendment. That at conception, that person was, that that embryo was a person and had all the legal rights of a person. You know, Catholic theology would agree with that, that that's a human life that needs to be protected. But what happened? Well, people started using their own fear against them, their own misunderstanding against them. There was some advertisements and news reported, reporting saying, well, gee, if, if the embryo is a person, then what happens if somebody has a miscarriage? Is that murder? Is somebody going to get somebody going to get arrested for a miscarriage? And the answer to that is, is no, of course not. That's a natural death. That'd be like saying, you know, a police officer saying, well, you know, I understand that there's been a lot of deaths at the nursing home this year. And we're sending somebody over to investigate because it must be murder. No, those are natural deaths. So we don't investigate the deaths that happen at the nursing home. Just like we wouldn't investigate the deaths that happen from a miscarriage. But then the real thing was, it was started being reported that, well, maybe people get arrested for the birth control they use. Because 
they were they were kind of tipping their hand there a little bit. Some birth control is a abortifacient, so it kills the embryo by stripping the uter- uterus lining, and then the uh, the embryo passes during menstruation. And I'm sure uh, Dr. Amy Hogan has covered all this stuff with you guys. They were saying, "Oh, that's going to be charged with murder." Well, that got people at their core fear, which was. Now they're going to take away my birth control, my favorite birth control. They're going to make that illegal. So that's what people were really reacting to. Not that they didn't think an embryo deserved um, to be called a person, but they didn't want their birth control to be taken away. That's that's even more worshipped in America than abortion is. That's that's leads to the altar of of abortion is birth control. So that's that's going after my sex life. That's going after my responsibility-free sex life. Nobody can touch that. So I think that's why that one got defeated. There might have been a case in uh, Mississippi court that, that said that uh, fertilized human egg is not a person because I saw this letter in the newspaper, local newspaper, and this guy's writing in, and he's doing a satirical piece. He's kind of doing a uh, you know a modest proposal, which was um, written about uh, you know here's a modest proposal about famine and too many kids. Let's just start eating the kids. Was his modest proposal, and it was supposed to be a satire to get people to say how look how absurd your position is. Follow it out to the end. It's called re- reduction to the absurd, and it's a logical fallacy. But you know, look how how silly your position is. So this guy's doing the same thing. He's saying, you know, how can it be that the Mississippi Mississippi court determined that it's not a person? Now we need to work on this because we believe it's a person. And then he starts talking about St. Thomas Aquinas and how St. Thomas Aquinas had a teaching called the necessary waters of paradise that everybody should be baptized as, as soon as possible. And he says, well, if we really believe that it, it's a person, then the embryo should be baptized, is his satirical argument here. And he goes on to quote the Pope, saying a bunch of things that the Pope didn't say. The embryo has original sin, and the embryo soul need to be saved. And if we really believe that it's a person, that we should start almost like these people that are saying, if you really think it's a person, then you need to investigate every miscarriage because... That that's a murder because that's a death of a life. Yeah, it's a natural death of a, of a life. Okay, we don't investigate every death at the hospital. Only if somebody says, "Listen, I think it was kind of suspicious," but uh, that doesn't make the news when somebody dies at the hospital or nursing home. That's just natural, and so we don't need to do that. So he goes on to say that that the fertilized persons are in danger of losing heaven unless we we baptize them, and then he goes on to say. That, but what if the waters of baptism accidentally kill the embryo before it actually saves them? And then it goes on to say, well, what about the the sperm and the egg? Aren't they half a person? So therefore, shouldn't aren't they a potential person? So therefore, shouldn't we be saving them as well? He's just really making kind of a kind of a silly argument, trying to show people how their their reliance on church teaching doesn't make any sense, but. I think his position doesn't make any sense because this is a church teaching, okay? Church teaching is we are trusting science to tell us when human life begins. Our answer to that question is we don't know. A theological answer to when does life begin is we don't know. But we do know it's wrong to kill a child at two years old like in 
like in the holy innocence, the death of the holy innocence. We, we know that. In fact, Christians from the very beginning were known for saving children. In Rome, they would take a child, a young child that they didn't want, they'd take them outside the city walls and they put them on the hill and it was called death by exposure that, you know, just let God take care of them. Right? In fact, it was often said that Rome was was founded by two brothers who they were done, they were put out there on the side of the hill and that they were raised by wolves, Remus and Romulus, I think. So they were thrown away. They were cast out, but they survived. And so the idea is you put the kid out there and then if they survive, then they were meant to be. If they don't, then they don't. Well, the, uh, the Christians would come and they'd find these kids on the hillside outside the gates and they'd pick them up and they'd take them into their families. Right. So from the very beginning, the church was saying, this is a life. This is life worth protecting. This isn't a useless mouth as Hitler would often comment about the handicapped or the children, but then later the Jews, the clergy, the, you know, Catholics, uh, homosexuals, you know, anybody, he would start saying these, these are just more and more of the useless masses, more and more of useless mouths, empty uh, feeders, you know, and a drain on society. But Christianity came along and said, no, this person was created by God and God has given them life. So who are we to take it away? And so we're going to take care of this life. So we know it's a life at two years old. We'll then go back to when they're born. We know that they're, it's a life right after they're born. Take it back just a, just an hour before that. An hour before they born, do they cease to be human at that point? No, everybody would admit that that partial birth abortion is a horrible tragedy. Not just a horrible tragedy, a horrible murder. Because that's a human being that's one step away from taking its first breath with its lungs is killed by collapsing its skull. We could all say to ourselves, you know, the teachings of Jesus, would I want my skull collapsed? Well, then how can I want that for my neighbor? Now, love your neighbor as yourself. So if I don't want that for myself, I surely don't want that for my neighbor and I should protect that neighbor. Well, then go a month before that. Is it still a child? Go a month before that. Is it still a child? Is it go a month before that? Is it still a child? That's how um, the church looks at it, is that we go back. We say, Listen, at what point can we take the risk that it's not a child? Uh, you know, there's some people said, well, at viability, viability is when a child can be taken out of the womb and will survive. That's when it's a child. And that's been found to be around 24 weeks. But then, uh-oh, surprise, 23 weeks. Somebody survives after 20, somebody survives after only 22 weeks in the womb. Okay. Then it just keeps on moving farther and farther back. This idea of life, the church in its wisdom says, listen, we don't know when life begins, but we can't take any of the risk of just killing killing this life it looks to be of human origin and then taking a risk that that was a human person it's kind of like you go hunting and you see some you see some uh rustling in the trees now there could be could be a couple of different things it could be the wind blowing the trees and you shoot it and all you shoot is the trees that's a neutral act. You haven't you haven't killed anything. You haven't hurt anything. It could be a deer, and you shoot it, and you kill the deer. Well, you were hunting deer, right? So that's a good act. You got food for your family. Or it could be your fellow hunter that your bu- your best friend that you went hunting with, and you shoot him, and that's an evil act because you've taken a human life. Yeah, you didn't know, 
but you also didn't investigate whether that was a human life. That's what the church is asking here. And let's investigate what kind of life it is. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. We'll be right back with more about the killing of innocence with Father Joshua Wirth. On double-edged sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. The killing of innocence. With Father Joshua Worth. Yeah, yeah, you didn't know, but you also didn't investigate whether that was a human life. That's what the church is asking here, and. Let's investigate what kind of life it is. And the church turns to science for that. So it says here, based on universally accepted scientific criteria, a new cell, the human zygote, comes into existence at the moment of sperm, egg, and fusion, an event that occurs in less than a second. Upon formation, the zygote immediately initiates a complex sequence of events that establish the molecular conditions required for continued embryonic development. The behavior of the zygote is radically unlike that of either a sperm or an egg. So it's not a sperm anymore. It's not an egg anymore. It's something new, and it's growing. It's unlike that of either sperm and egg separately. It's characteristic of a human organism. So it ha- it's a being of the human variety. So it's a human being. Thus, the scientific evidence supports the conclusion that a zygote is a human organism and that the life of a new human being commences at a scientifically well-defined moment of conception. This conclusion is objective, consistent with the factual evidence and independent of any specific ethical, moral, political, or religious view of human life or human embryos. Human life of, of human embryos, okay? So church turns to to science says, you know, we're, we're just taking the cautious path and we're saying, we don't know. You tell us when does human life begin? And science tells us the moment of conception. So to get back to this, uh, this guy's article that he wrote in a paper, he says, well, if you believe that you should be baptizing the baby. Well, uh, that argument is kind of ridiculous, but let me answer it with kind of a, a quotation from scripture that maybe will put some light on the subject. Jesus, when talking to the people, when Jesus talked about baptism, he said that in order to gain heaven, one must be born again of both spirit and water, meaning baptism. He uses the term born again. So that's where a lot of people get the term, you know, I'm a born again Christian. Born again means you have to be born first. So that's why we don't baptize embryos. I know it's I know it's kind of ridiculous. I have to answer that but that's why we don't baptize embryos the child has to be born first before the child can be born again in spirit and water all right but that gets us to an interesting topic of what happens to miscarriages what happens to those children killed in abortion what happens to embryos that in a way are miscarried as well the answer to that is we don't know this we do know god can act outside of his sacraments 
And some people say, well, then sacraments aren't necessary. No. Sacraments are necessary for those who can attain them. So you're bound to what you can attain. Imagine that thief on the cross. He turns to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus could say, gosh, I wish I could, but you really have to get baptized. I'm sorry. It's absolutely necessary. Uh, that is the teaching of the church. The teaching of the church is that baptism is absolutely necessary. But Jesus can go outside of his own sacraments. He's not bound by it. We are bound by what's available to us. So if you go through your whole life and baptism was available to you and you ignored it, then he's going to hold you accountable to that. But if baptism was never available to you, like it's not available to the embryo, it's not available to the victim of abortion, it's not available to the miscarriage, then obviously you're not bound to that. So when Jesus turned to that thief, he didn't say, sorry, you weren't baptized. He said, no, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm superseding. That was what we call a, a baptism of desire, that it wasn't available to you, but If it had been, you would have taken it. God can see that in your heart. He can even see that in these abortion victims, in these miscarriages, in these embryos. He can even see whether or not they were ever offered baptism, whether they would take it or not. He knows this. It's not beyond his power. That's really disingenuous attack trying to say, well, Catholics are being, pro-life people are being hypocritical. That if you really believed it was a life, you would protect every life every miscarriage, you'd be fighting against, you know, you'd be arresting every woman that had a miscarriage or anything like that. You would be baptizing these embryos. You'd be doing all, no, that's not, that's not true. You have to be born first. And we trust that Jesus knows whether or not they would have accepted baptism if it was, had ever been available to them. So we're not, we're not worried about that. So science tells us when human life begins, science tells us that at the moment of conception, it stops being an embryo or a sperm. It's something new, something with all the genetic makeup of a human being, of a human, that it's a being, it's growing. So it has being, it has life, it's growing, it's of the human variety, it's a human being, and that it should be protected Another thing, I've seen the same author write in, a, write in a paper he wrote one time about how Augustine didn't know if the, if the embryo had a soul and that you only had to, it only becomes a person when it has a soul. And if you, go in, if you go into the theology, yeah, it's true. A person is only a person when it has a soul. But here's, here's the thing. What's the test for that? And it's kind of funny when, when, on one hand, people are saying, I'm a scientific person, and you need to test somebody for a soul before I'll protect them. The Catholic Church says, listen, there is no test for a soul. So we got we to gotta treat everybody and everything as if, as if they absolutely do have one. I could go up to you right now. I can, I can ask you, tell me if you have a soul or not. Prove to me you have a soul. How would you do it? If I tested you, how would you prove that you have a soul? You might, you might um, recite some Shakespeare Okay. Well, a parrot can do that. I can train a parrot to do that. You might, um, you might write something out, a, a poem. And, you know, a monkey with a keyboard could do that if I give him enough time. You could say, well, I got human DNA. And I can say every, every uh, so is my toilet at home. That's got human DNA too. All right. So what is the test that says that something has a soul? The church has never said, 
If you, if you discover that something doesn't have a soul, then it's okay to kill it. Never. St. Augustine never said that. St. Thomas never said that. They've said, listen, we don't know. So we have to turn to science. What does science say? Science tells us it's a human life at the moment of conception. And the saints say, protect it then. Whether it has a soul or not, we don't know. How will we ever know? Protect it, though, as if it did. It's not okay just to kill things because you think it doesn't have a soul. That's, that's the height of hubris. That's the, what we call eugenics. It's what Planned Parenthood was started on. It was to pursue the gene, uh, dream of eugenics to purify the human race, purify it of the disabled, purify it of the disfigured, purify it of the minorities, of the blacks and the Latinos, and to purify the white race, to bring about that, that Nietzschean philosophy of the Superman, the Ubermensch, what Darwin you know, looked out and he said, we're not like the rest of the animal kingdom. Animal kingdom lets its weaker people die, its weaker species die. But he said, humans are dumber than animals because we keep around uh, the weak. But that's what makes us human. We're not like animals. Animals do not show us the key to everything. I grew up on a pig farm, and if you didn't feed the mom pig, it would turn on its babies and eat its babies. That doesn't mean it's right because it's a habit in a natural world. It's a fallen natural world. That's why we need baptism to save us from this fallen natural world that we're in. I had a similar argument with somebody, and they said, well, how can this one cell, how can that be a human life? How can that be a human being? So would you protect one of my skin cells? It has all the genetics of a human life. But, you know, he's right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't protect a skin cell. I wouldn't say that's a person because it has all the genetics of a human being. But that's not what we're talking about here. When we, when we use embryos for embryonic stem cell research, we're not taking a piece of it off and it remains intact. And then we just use that piece. Like if you took a skin cell from me, we're taking the whole thing, the totality of the whole thing. So imagine if I came up to you and I said, oh, can I have one of your skin cells for a test? You'd say, sure. Okay, no problem. And I said, well, actually, no, uh, I, I miscounted. I need all of your skin cells, every last one of your skin cells. You might have a problem with that. Or if I came up to you and said, can I have one of your heart cells? You'd say, oh, sure. It might kind of stink when you stick the needle in, you pull it all out, you know, and just say, well, actually, tell you the truth, I need all of your heart cells. You go, wait a minute, all of my heart cells, that's my human life is contained in with, within there. Is my soul contained in my heart? No. My life is contained in there. If you take out all my heart cells, I'm going to die. The same way with the embryo. We don't just take a bit of it and leave it, leave it unharmed. We take the whole thing. We rip its heart out. And we say, you don't need this. What a terrible tragedy we've done to this country. And I often wonder how much longer uh, God is going to allow it. Because as I showed you in Jeremiah, you know, this was the sin of ancient Israel before the Babylonian exile, when he just let their world crumble around them, their country crumble. Because he said, listen, you go off and you sacrifice your children to these, to these foreign idols, these alien idols, you kill your children for them. 
And, but we do the same. We kill our children for our idol, which is money, which is comfort, which is convenience, which is to be the God of our own life. And we hate to have a child mess that up. It's not the right time, we say. But apparently, it was the right time to have sex. Oh, let me get to that other part that people often say. But what about rape and incest? Isn't that allowed then when that woman didn't have the choice? She didn't have the choice to whether she's going to have sex or not. And the answer to that is, when is it okay to kill a child? Name your reason. When is it okay to kill a child? Is it okay to kill a child when, sorry kid, your dad, your dad was a rapist. Your dad was a molester. And you got to go. Because you were never wanted and you remind us of him. What a horrible, horrible mentality now. And believe me, that's a horrible situation to have a child. But it only accounts for, I believe, less than 5% of abortions come from rape and incest. But yet we protect it with these 95%, these, these going on 50 million dead babies that were killed as a form of contraception. We protect those 5% that was really, really a, a tragedy that happened to the mother. But we protect those dead babies with 50 million bodies of contraception. And I just think America's got to sober up. You know, we're so drunk on this. We're drunk on the blood of abortion in America. I mean, Europeans fly over here to get late-term abortions. They can't even do it in their own country. They have laws. Most laws in Europe is you can't have uh, abortion after 24 weeks after viability, after that, the baby can live outside the womb. And But over here, we've all put it underneath the disguise of, of privacy, that it's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. Yeah, it's your body. It's also somebody else's body, too. And they try to, everybody tries to do all these mental gymnastics. It's a, it's a parasite. It's what if you woke up one day and somebody was, was uh, attached to you, sucking out your food, your oxygen. Would you just say, oh, well, nine months later, I'll be fine. No, this, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Fertility is not a crime. Okay. Fertility is, for most people, isn't even a surprise. It shouldn't be. They should understand that they had sex and one of the possibilities that comes out of sex is a child. I don't think anybody should consider it, you know, if it's not rape or incest, I don't see how anybody could be surprised and say it's a parasite and it's uh, this attack on my person when that's what sexual organs are for. That's everything happened exactly like it was supposed to. It's, It's really bizarre. It's really bizarre. What do I hope to see in this country? I hope to see people sober up. I hope to see people start pushing back the laws and saying, you know what, this isn't, this isn't right. And 
being incremental about it. And just the same way it was incrementally pushed down on us. It didn't happen overnight. When Roe v. Wade was decided, there's plenty of states next day that still had the laws on the books. It was still illegal. But slowly by slowly, they just took over state by state by state, county by county by county, until the whole United States was an abortion field. But we need to start pushing back. We need to start taking over counties, pushing abortion clinics out, pushing them out of our counties, out of our cities, out of our states. You know, the real the real way to win this war is to convert the doctors. You know, fewer and fewer doctors are performing these abortions, which I can see why, because they are realizing, you know, my own science is telling me that this is human life. But somehow the right to privacy has overcome the right to life. And they say, I don't want anything to do with this. And they walk away. And thank God that God is changing their their hearts. But the pro-abortion people are fighting back. They're saying, force doctors to take away their choice, take away their conscience rights, and force them to be abortion, and force nurses to. And so the pro-choice people have become the no, you've got to be pro-abortion doctors. You have to be trained. Nurses, you have to be trained in order to do this. That this is our right. Women's reproductive rights is what they call it. But really, it's just that right to not be inconvenienced. That right to get back to zero. The right to undo what's been done. And we can't allow that to continue in this country. And I would like to, people often say, well, what, what would the, if it was criminal, right, then there would still be, there would still be abortions. You're never going to stop it. No. Just like murder is criminal. I mean, we don't stop murders. Rape is criminal. We don't stop all rapes. I don't want to see the women who are desperate. I don't want to see them go to jail if they try to get abortion. What I want to see is whatever doctor try to do it. I want them to see their medical license taken away. That's what I'd like to see. One that two patients walked into your room, doctor, and only one of them came out. You got a fifty percent mortality rate. You're not doing your your oath, which is first do no harm. I think doctors should be held up to that to that standard. Their own standard. That's their own. I didn't come up with that. That's their own standard. Their own oath that they take. And and slowly that way starts pushing back against this drunkenness, this drunkenness of blood, this drunkenness of murder that, that America is on to protect, protect our lifestyle, protect our lifestyle of indulgence and our lifestyle of money and wealth. And this is really, this is really where it's got to begin. And so I hope that you all will pray for the end of abortion and think about those infants that died and that first, those first martyrs, the holy innocents that died in the place of Jesus and realize that Jesus is still suffering in this world, wherever the, wherever there is death. You know, people ask, where was God when during the Holocaust? And someone said he was in the ovens with them. He was in the consecration camps with them. Where was God you know, during 
starvation of communism, Russia, and China. God was starving with them. And where is God with, where is Jesus in this abortion holocaust that's going on in America? And the answer is, Jesus is dying there too. How many times have Jesus given us a chance to to turn back to him like he gave the Israelites? Turn back from your idols. Turn back from the slaughtering of your children. Turn back and I'll make you my own. And he's probably given us a hundred great presidents, a hundred great doctors, a hundred great priests and bishops and nuns. You know, we say, where are these people today? And what if he gave it? gave us that person that knew the cure to cancer. He gave us that person that knew peace. He gave us that person that knew victory. And he gave us that new pope. He gave us that new bishop that would bring unity. But we aborted them in the womb. We never, God's been sending us his prophets, but we've been killing them. And it's going to be the unraveling of us, of us all, you know, all the I think 46 states are in debt. The United States government's in debt. Social Security is, in, is giving out more money. It's taken in. Medicare is running over. You know, but our our population keeps on increasing in America. And it's for two reasons. One, immigration. Two, because old people are living longer. But we don't have enough young people to replace them. And so everything is turned upside down. We're never going to sell as many houses as we used to. We're never going to sell as many cars. We're never going to sell as many. We're never going to get as much money into Social Security as we did before because everybody had less and less and less kids. You know, we're missing we're missing 50 million people out of this country. 50 million people that would be paying be paying taxes. 50 million people that would be buying houses and buying cars. 50 million people would be paying into Social Security, but because. Now it's an upside-down pyramid with all the elderly, all the baby boomers at the top, and then the young, smaller, smaller, smaller numbers down at the bottom. And a country, a country can't survive the demographics that, that uh, we have. You know, no country's ever survived it. Our demographics look like a plague hit us, a famine, a war hit us. But it was a war that we, we perpetrated on our own young through abortion, and contraception and we're barely stemming the tide through immigration we're barely keeping up our numbers through immigration but uh, it's going to come a time soon where where we can't do that anymore so pray for an end to abortion pray for conversion of abortion doctors that they will see that they are they're working out that that terrible work of herod of destroying trying to destroy jesus in this world trying to destroy God in this world, pray for them. So we, and pray for those poor mothers that, um, you know, went in there, went into those clinics looking to go back to the way it was and found nothing but heartache and pain that many of them were often tricked and deceived and told lies and they had no idea. Pray for them as well. So that's perhaps if our country doesn't return, you know, to God that many of its people will, that especially Christians will. Christians will embrace that message of Jesus that we learned on Christmas Day, that Jesus, that God became a child and was a child from the moment of conception. 
and that if that child disappears, our hope disappears. If our children disappear, hope for our country disappears. So pray, 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 pray that God will open our eyes and we can return to him and become a pro-life country. God bless. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Double-Edged Sword, Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. If you have a comment about today's show, please go to dvmercy.com and click on the Double-Edged Sword icon. The comment button is in the middle of the page. And folks, if you can help keep great shows like Double-Edged Sword on the air, please go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lindsberg Salina, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, and 88.1 KBDM Hayes. If today you hear his voice, pardon not your hearts.